Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 20, Weaponizing History. Hey, Chris. Welcome to our 20th episode, another nice round number. We were supposed to celebrate, I think, in our culture, we celebrate round numbers, right? Yeah, indeed. We love symmetry. It's a hag milestone, you might say. Yeah, one of one of many. I think our, our Pulitzer is our next one. There's, there's Pulitzers for podcasting now, isn't there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And I think you can work your way up to the Nobel, but... Listen, when we had 10 episodes, you looked it up. You said it was like our, our I want to say, what, maybe a tin anniversary or something? I, tin. Pa- I think it was some kind of paper product, actually. Toilet paper. I think it was a toilet paper anniversary, maybe. So we've maybe worked our way up to hard metals or? Maybe. Yeah, you know, this this shows where we've where we've come because 10 episodes seemed like a big deal. And then I totally forgot that 20 was a round number that we needed to mention until three seconds ago. So uh, I haven't looked up what, what the uh, the proper gifts that our listeners can send us for our 20th episode anniversary. I'm going to guess it's aragonite, the aragonite anniversary. That's so a good mineral. You'll have to go somewhere to the desert southwest to mine that, but um, it's not asking too much. Something else that's that's going on right now is we are starting to gear up for going back to school. Now, both of us have wives who are teachers as well. So we got them gearing up. We, I have three kids who are all back in school, just started this, this week actually back at school. So we are firmly planted in this back to school preparations. How's that going for you, by the way? Well, I've been in a constant state of denial myself, naturally. Uh, but uh, for those who you know, were not so fortunate including our, our wives, for example, who, who truly have to go back to work as it is, back to school, let's say. Uh, it's, it's been very interesting because, for example, Jenny's going over to the high school to her classroom, which, of course, you know, is barren of students. The campus uh, is, is closed to students. And a lot of the faculty, in, in fact, are not, you know, driving in. And, of course, they live here in in the Bay Area, where to, to drive in is to get you know lost in, in gridlock traffic. So for a lot of them, I imagine it's saving them a great deal of time and gas, money, and that sort of thing. So Jenny's over in a school nearly empty in her classroom. I asked her if the chairs were up on the, you know, on the desk, but she said no, they were down on the floor, and that was good. Uh, so she's teaching remotely from an empty classroom on, on campus. But you know, I understood, and I, I don't know about in your case, she felt she couldn't do real-time Zoom meetings with her students from our bedroom. It'd be a, it'd be a, a it'd be a look. She should just take a picture of her classroom and then make that her her Zoom background. Her background. Her, it's she she'll always be in her classroom if that if she does that. True. Um, yeah, no, I, I get. It's the ambiance, though, right? I mean, you you yeah. could probably fake it. I mean, she she could turn the camera a certain way so that it looked at you know maybe a. Um, you know, cavalierly placed stack of books, you know, to yep. suggest our scholarly bent. Right, you know, very specific titles like, showing. Yeah. <laughs> a stack of laundry on the floor. So she could do that, 
But it's just that you know you're sitting in your bedroom, you know, yeah. and the guy with the leaf blower is outside. And right. so I think just to get into the proper mind of, uh, you know, of teaching, she, she felt she had to go over. But, it's, but it is like a ghost town over there. I, I understand that. Yeah, I, I can see just needing to be in the, the, the right context even, do, do your job, you know, in the place where you usually do your job is, is important. Um, it's weird, you know, we're doing fully online uh, I'm going to try to meet with students, you know, meet with students. I put that in <laughs> bold quotes, but, uh, but you know, see students through my computer screen a, a few times a week uh, as, you know, if I can make it happen. I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. This is part of our my denial also is I have these big plans for what I'm going to do, but haven't actually tried to figure out how I'm going to do them yet. Um, but, yeah, just to create some kind of, you know, some kind of connection with them because, Online classes, I, I you know, I'm I'm ambivalent about online. I do it, and I I know that students get value out of it. I know it's important for people with, with busy, complicated lives, but I have a hard time feeling like it's equal to being in class and seeing each other and having you know face to face interactions. So I, I, I want to try to replicate that in in whatever way I can, while also taking into account that we live in the end times, right, and mm-hmm. uh, forcing people to you know, find an hour or an hour and 20 minutes a few times a week to go stand and sit in front of a computer um, is, is probably asking a lot, uh, especially because, you know, we, our students are older. Many of them have families and young kids and all this kind of stuff. And the stress of having to be on screen is it's it's real, right? It's not mm-hmm. something to, to take lightly. So it's going to be a challenge is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I had a student email me this week who's going to be uh, undergoing a sinus surgery the first week of class, you know, and and when you're a community college professor, you know, real life issues are never very far from, you know, your classroom, uh, you know, doorway, and sometimes they're right there in the class with you, but uh I told her, I said, you know, no, no problem, since we're online, you know, just take your laptop to the hospital and when you're in post-op, you know, fire up the laptop and yeah. see so what nice homework I've assigned. And yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was, a, you know, a, a liberal compromise. Right. I, and, you know, that just stressed for me. This is something a lot of people have been saying. But, you know, if you're a teacher and, and your focus right now is how you're going to police your students at this moment, oh. you, you probably need to just think about other things. There's there's probably more important things to, to get into than, you know, I know... Teachers have this idea of, of what the classroom is supposed to be like, and you know people are supposed to be paying attention and listening. But you just you're not going to be able to replicate that online, um, and so it, I think it's really important to, to to lighten up right now. And I don't want to give teaching advice to to people necessarily, but it it just does seem like at this moment of all the worries that exist for for ourselves and our students, whether they're you know fully 100% tuned in to every word we're saying while they're staring at their computer in a house, you know we're kids are running around and they're supposed to be in school, but they're not and all this kind of stuff. And the economy is collapsing and COVID is out there. It's probably not, doesn't need to be our, our main concern about the, the level of attention they're giving to us at this moment. Yeah, I agree, my friend. In fact, I'm going to quote you from now on. I'm going to say, as Josh Weiner says, lighten up. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, you know, at, at her school, I'll say, you know, the, she's fortunate because, you know, how it is in education, particularly K-12 public education, the principal you have, that is the top administrator of your school, uh, can make or break 
you know, any 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 school really. Uh, Definitely. Be, yeah. Only because a bad principal can really do a lot of damage. Uh, you know, a good principal basically just is 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 going to have teachers in a, in a kind of supportive environment do their best work. And so it's it's almost like if you have a bad principal, it's more noticeable. But um, in her case, she has a good principal. She's lucky. But as you say, somebody came up, and, and I, I don't think it was the principal. I think somebody, though, came up. They put together a committee, right, uh, of, of admin and said, we need some rules, you know, because that's what, you know, admin are that's there for. That's what they do, yeah. Yeah, and uh, one, one that came up with you like this is that in the uh, synchronous Zoom conferencing, that is when everybody's online at the same time looking at their screens, uh, that the teachers are to take role, take attendance at the beginning and at the end. Now, this is a 90-minute session, right? And typically, there would only be one attendance uh, taken, you know, right. per state mandate. Uh, now, it just turns out that my better half has never been especially impressed by things like mandates or yeah. rules. In fact, one of her thing, uh, I one of my favorite quotes of hers is, rules comma they don't apply to me <laughs> and so i was talking to her about this said, how are you going to handle this now they're they're doubling down on you saying you have to do a roll twice and she you know her attitude was absurd because being uh, far more resourceful and and technologically fluent generally these students particularly here in silicon valley do you think it would be difficult for them <laughs> if they wish to somehow be present only when role was taken, you know, at the very beginning, at the very end, and then go, I don't know, um, you know, ride their skateboards or, you know, switch uh, over to the Reddit channel on their laptop while the rest of the class was going on. In other words, you create these layers of policing. And, you know, friends of ours who listen to HAG will know how we feel about this. Create these layers of policing in the schools, and they are often absurdly self-defeating. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's representative, right, of the, of the power structure that the schools, you know, whatever our idea of the schools is, the the vision of what public education was going to be was a, a tool of the power structure, right? And mm -hmm. I, I absolutely think that you know modern public school systems are much better than than that vision, right? I, you know, I came up through public education all the way. I know you did as well, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I guess is not necessarily a. a um, a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, but yeah, they're they're agents of the power structure, and, and I think you know those who become teachers, generally, I will say, are, are at least those I've known are are don't want to buy into that. They've got their own ideas about what what school should be and how they should interact with their students and that kind of stuff. But that that legacy is still there, right? If there's anything we should you know listeners should get from uh, from our podcast, it's that the the legacies of the past don't go away. That there's they're built into everything we do. And I think that's absolutely the case with schools. And, and there's that, that element as well that, you know, when you yourself come up through this school system and you're used to teachers behaving a certain way and, and, uh, and a classroom discipline being a certain way, it's just the natural thing is that you feel, oh, that's what a classroom is like, therefore I'm going to do the same thing as well. And at some point I think it's important to just say, well, just because this is how I was taught doesn't mean it's the best way for uh, for me to do that as well. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me, just getting outside of the, the disciplining aspect of this, and it's different for us, you know, community college is a very different context than, than a high school or middle school or something like that. But 
yeah, we got to get outside this, this school as a tool of the power structure um, to make it something that, that is more useful for creating good people as opposed to good uh, citizens or good uh, uh, objects of power. Well, I'm glad you mentioned citizens, you know, Josh, because you know, let me hasten to add, I mean, you know, much of my family is, as you know, as you and, and, and your wife and, and you know, others we know are committed to is, is the best public school teaching. And I, and I would include community colleges in, in the public school matrix, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that uh, it's one of the things that, that it was a good idea, you know, some good liberal idea to create free right. public education, you know, and it's always been a good idea. And for the most part, many of us have, have benefited, you know, greatly from it. And I, I think we should do everything we can to preserve it. Um but there has been this kind of internal uh, battle, uh, internal and eternal battle that goes on within these institutions uh, between those who make rules and those who are charged with carrying out you know, the duties of teaching. And it's like a, I, I'm, I'm dating myself here, but the old Star Trek episode, you know, the OG Star Trek, uh, where the Lazarus character is, you know, literally stuck in a time void for eternity with his sort of uh, counterpart. Uh, antagonist, and they're you know they're they're at each, literally at each other's throats. I mean, they're they're hands around each other's necks in this sort of eternal uh, conflict, eternal fight that that they will remain in f- forever. Right? This is Gene right. Roddenberry's one of his um, you know remarkable fever dreams, and I thought that could easily be administrators and teachers. Yeah, you know, um, each fighting for what they consider to be the respective soul or something of education. But as a teacher, I'm not obligated to, um, you know, to be fair about this. No both sidesism here, you know, because much of the, the rules, much of the, uh, the sort of disciplining, as we'll say, in education, you know, of both teachers and students, you know, is often to me counterproductive. And I think, you know, even as a kid, you know, we talked last week how they had us singing armed services songs, you know, in class. Mm-hmm. Did you get citizenship grades coming up? It sounds familiar, but I'm not sure if that's just something that I've kind of, you know, taken in from the broader culture or something that actually was was applied. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't have specific memories of getting citizenship okay. grades, though. Maybe sometimes they call them like deportment or I don't know. Yeah. They have I'm, I'm aware of it. I'll, I'll say that I'm aware of, of okay. the concept, but. Well, ours were called citizenship. You know, we'd get those report cards, right? You know, and, and right. uh, this is before, the, obviously, the digital age. This, this was before the internal combustion engine age, you know. But this is, uh, <laughs> this is something I've often thought about. I talk to my students about, you know, because a big thing, as you'll appreciate, you know, as we put our syllabi together, uh, you know, at one point in my teaching career, it, it became much more rule-laden, the class yeah. syllabus. And the deans right. would be honest about, well, you have to cover every possible contingency so that, you know, the, the schoolhouse lawyer types don't come to my office and say, well, he never said we had to take the exam. It's not in the syllabus, you know. So right. I felt like it turned into a kind of legal document at, at some point. But I see the roots of that, you know, back in, in second, third grade, and we had citizenship grades that were, you know, regulating your behavior. And I always thought, because I was a chatty kid, you know, a, a hail fellow, well met in the classroom. I enjoyed the, <laughs> the back and forth, the easy exchange, you know, with my classmates. And I didn't always uh, go well with the teacher. Uh, we were supposed to be doing multiplication tables or something, but I'd do those quickly and have plenty of time to chat afterwards, you know. And so I'd get the, the C, C plus maybe. 
citizen C for citizenship is what I think it meant is kind of a heavy sanction. Wouldn't you say to Leanna Kidd? I mean, what does that actually mean if you're judged only average, let alone below average in citizenship? Does it mean they're going to deport you? Do you, do you lose your right to vote when you grow up? What, what does that actually mean, Josh? I think that's why you struggle to get jobs after college, right? They, they looked at your, your second grade transcripts and they said, this it followed me. This rabble rouser will never work in this, in this organization. How's your syllabus look these days? Is it rule-laden or have you just turned it more into a, a groovy kind of shared experience document? The, I think I, this is something I need, to, I need to spend more time on because, you know, you spend a lot of time in the syllabus and then I, at a certain point, realized students don't read the syllabus anyway. And so I kind of forgot about it and just, you know, made the, the changes to dates and didn't really think about it too much. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, I, I posted online. I didn't. I didn't hand it out uh, physically in class and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I have seen a lot of stuff about how you know the syllabus is actually important. It's a, it's the welcoming you know to the class. It's it, it establishes what this is going to be, and it can invite students in, but it can also you know scare them off. Um, so I, I I think I probably need to rethink it. I, I agree with you that. You know, it went from a two-page document when I first started to like a seven, eight-page document, <laughs> um, and uh, not even just because of, because of rules, but just because, like you, like you were saying, there's this idea you've got to everything's got to be in there. If it's not in there, then it's not, you know, it's not legal. Right? They haven't they haven't signed the the complete contract if it's not all in there. So it's something I need to think think more about. Uh, you know, I tend to to you know do introductions, you, you know, in different ways and try to invite the students in, not through the syllabus, but through, you know, the way I introduce the class, you know, whether written or, or spoken. But um, yeah, it, it, it's something that, that deserves to be thought about a little bit more. And I, I think, you know, this kind of idea of decolonizing the syllabus is, is important as well, that this is their first access to what this thing is going to be, what this uh, school, school is going to be, what this class is going to be like. Often, you know, in our case, for students who, you know, maybe didn't don't have the best academic record. Maybe school didn't go so well for them, you know, in their their younger years. And so this is the the opportunity to to kind of show them how this is going to be different, or how it can be different, or how, you know, we're going to approach learning in a different way than maybe they're they're used to. So I I, I um, am very sympathetic to the idea that the syllabus is worth uh, thinking about and and uh, making welcoming and inviting. But I will admit that I haven't done the work yet to uh, to actually do that. Well, it sounds like to me you're going to have to take out the four to five pages of, of punishment guidelines uh, for, for various infractions. All the illustrations are uh, probably taking up a lot of space there uh, of, of the, the discipline. We probably don't, don't need all the, all the diagrams in there, I think, right? Yeah, I thought stoning was a little harsh. You know, you miss a second quiz and it's you know out to the public square, and I didn't think you needed to have that in there. I like to replicate you know biblical punishments because I do teach the <laughs> early world history class, and um, you know if they don't see what this stuff is like, then it's really hard for them to get it. So I'm just you know there are visual learners, there are auditory learners, and then there's those who actually actually have to experience you know what what our predecessors went through. So that was, that was my thinking, but I, I think you're right. Maybe that stoning is not. Uh, as acceptable as it once was. Yeah, but I know in all seriousness, I do I do agree with you. I mean, over the arc of my whole career, I've I've seen these. You know, nothing can be trendy like education, right? But I mean, I, right. I you know the the uh, various uh, reforms and you know modifications and you know differences in in sort of 
approach, et cetera, to these kinds of things. We're not even talking about the content, the stuff we teach. We're just talking about all right. the uh, externalities, you know, and the mechanisms of of discipline and control and all that kind of stuff. You know, I know both of us, and, and we're taking the second part of our intro segment today uh, before getting to our, our special guest. Thinking about education uh, as we continue in the uh, age of pandemic uh, and seeing how education works through governing channels, uh, particularly public education, uh, and how things like uh, you know you know rules and, and requirements and and administrative authority and decision making and such and and boy it's it's been a bang up uh, back to school most of the time back to school is you know pretty scripted but with the pandemic. You know, we've really had, um, you know, sort of the equivalent of jazz fusion or something. You know, a lot of unexpected sights and sounds and, and you know, takes and improvs and whatnot. And, uh, you know, our favorite, uh, the, the Hag News Team, you know, I want our listeners to, to be reassured. The Hag News Team never sleeps. We're out investigating day and night the top stories. You know, and when that fails, what, what do we just get on Twitter, right? Right in our in our red blazers up. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're following in Georgia right now. You know, one of those states that was, uh, you know, part of that that political universe of sort of macho unconcern. You know, with things like uh, virus, um, you know, contagions and such, viral contagions, uh, and the coronavirus that they were insisting upon opening up their schools, and so we've all been treated to. What has been a kind of Keystone Cops routine? Remember the old, uh, you know, black and white serials from the '30s with the Keystone Cops, the you know, sort of fast motion, you know, chasing the comic right. bad guy in and out of doors, and you know, over um, over and under things, and running into each other and that kind of stuff. Well, it's been a real key, Keystone Cops moment down there in, in Georgia. I, I noticed, for example, and this is a bit of a hobby of mine, Josh is reading school school marquees, you know, because every school yeah. has a marquee. And the one at the Hasty Elementary School uh, there in Georgia, it's a suburb of Atlanta. In the marquee, it said, we are stronger together. Now, listen, uh, what do you think? I mean, in, in a pandemic where the school, in effect, becomes a kind of Petri dish, is it a good message to saying you're stronger Together, or or was the quote actually from the virus itself? I don't know. <laughs> you think there's a there's like a double agent, double, <laughs> double, double agent? They're quoting agent coronavirus there, aren't they? Well, I, I will say that you know the, the name of the school is Hasty, so I don't know why you're expecting them to be patient. <laughs> they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. But uh, I mean, in all seriousness, this is horrifying, right? That yeah, that the lives of of our children are just being cavalierly, you know put in danger for these political victories, right? Just so they can say we opened the schools on time. I'm sure everybody saw mm -hmm. that photo that was going around. It was that last week, maybe. Uh, they Another, you know, in Georgia again. Mm -hmm. Brian Kemp, keep doing what you're doing, I guess. Uh, North Paulding High School, Josh. Okay, I looked it you, up yeah. in Dallas, Georgia. Dallas, Georgia. And, uh, yeah, the, the crowded hallways and... Um, and uh, nobody, I mean, I think there was like maybe three people in this, you know, hallway where you saw dozens and dozens of people wearing masks. Um, and shockingly, there was, I think, nine 
COVID diagnoses uh, in the in the week after. Mm-hmm. And you you actually read the uh, was it the superintendent or the principal who had a statement the about the super the superintendent. Yeah. Yeah. Who, by the way, uh, just as a, a side note, uh, there's not a superintendent in the country that won't announce him or herself as Doctor So and So. Yeah. Right. And and if you if you scratch the surface of that credential, you know what you'll find is is some sort of um, you know ch- degree on the cheap and what something they call like educational leadership. But I thought, you know, per capita PhDs, I would have to say school and superintendents more often lead with their credential title than almost any other, except possibly what medical doctors, who I think have a, a good reason to, uh, announcing themselves as Dr. So-and-so. Yeah, but I, I read the good doctor's note to parents uh, where he said, well, well, look, you know, um, that, that photo was... Um, was not representative. I, I don't I don't know how, how how do you misrepresent a crowded hallway full of teenagers? I'm not sure. But he said uh, we're not requiring masks. It was mask optional. But the good news, he said, uh, Doctor So and So said that because the students are only and the other reason he said the picture was misrepresented is because they were just in the passing period. They were just going from one class to another. Uh, which is only about a three-minute process, which, hey, listen, I took longer than three minutes in high school, but maybe these kids are more efficient um, because I usually had to go out to the car and have a cigarette, you know, before I went to Spanish. <laughs> but anyway, is that um, they were just in passing and that it's it's scientifically uh, shown that to be in any kind of danger, you have to expose yourself to the coronavirus, he said, uh, for 14 or 15 minutes. Right. I, I mean, he's a doctor, so I guess I'll go with him. <laughs> but I do have questions, including uh, after the passing period, is presumably they're going to a classroom, and that class will presumably take more than 15 minutes. Is that fair <laughs> to say? Well, you're going to have to take that up with the doctor. I, I, you know, his point was just the picture was misrepresented. What do you want from him? You know, I will say this. I checked it out this morning. So as we speak, or at least as of yesterday, nearly 1,200 students and staff members in the district overall have already been ordered to quarantine, just as as North Paulson had been uh, required to shut down for a few days. I don't know if they're back open, Uh, but had been ordered to quarantine. 1,200 students and staff members, uh, one high school, uh, North Paulson, closed its doors at least through August 31st. So I guess that answers my question. I guess they're not back open. A second high school followed on Wednesday. Uh, but in a separate district, Josh, Cherokee Public Schools spokeswoman. See, when you're a spokeswoman, you're not a doctor. You're just a spokeswoman. Barbara uh, Jacoby said that the district had, quote, made clear, quote, we anticipated positive tests among students and staff would occur, which is why we put a system into place to quickly contract a trace mandate or contact trace mandate quarantines notify parents and report cases and quarantines the entire community so how do you feel if you're a parent in the cherokee public school system in georgia that knowing as spokeswoman uh jacoby says they put a system in place systems are good right that's if there's anything we've learned from this podcast is that systems are good um it's so the, the logic of all this. I don't know if you saw this. We, maybe we talked about this, but uh, Kathleen Parker in the Washington Post had a, 
an op-ed on uh, over the weekend. I can't remember exactly when it was. And the title was, the headline was, COVID is here to, here to stay, schools must open. All right? It's the <laughs> most disjointed thing I've ever heard because I don't understand what the second part has to do with the first part. But her, her whole thing was, you know, she's been talking to these crying parents who don't know how they're going to be able to uh, do their work from home while also taking care of their kids, which absolutely, by the way, is a big deal. Right? I don't mean to, uh, to suggest that's not a big deal. But if you're a parent working from home now because of, obviously... Um, because of these these restrictions on on working in offices and that kind of thing, as stressful as it might be to have your your student your your children rather doing school from home, how much more stressful will it be for you to have to take care of a sick child with COVID while working from home and uh, and trying to do your stuff there as well? I mean, it's it's so crazy how this kind of short term thinking and long term thinking. I mean, there's really there's no thinking, right? They just want the symbolism of things opening up. Right to, to suggest we've conquered this thing, despite all evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. But everything they say is 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 immediately contradiction contradicted by the reality of what this would actually mean for you know how we're going to live our lives. So it's it's a sad thing. As much as we've been trying to make fun of this, this is a sad thing. And it's you know you start looking the, at the data and you see like you know I think six people in Germany died yesterday of COVID and it's like four people in England and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. zero people in in Canada or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, you get to the United States and it's, 1,200 people died. Um, yeah. And no, I, that's not a coincidence, right? No, it isn't. And and I think that's what really, whatever, you know, uh, laughter emanates, it's it's really a kind of a mask for outrage, you know? Uh, Laugh to keep from crying, right? Right. You know, I mean, look in, in the Cher- Cherokee School, you know, where, where spokeswoman uh, uh, Jacoby put out her statement about their system, you know, by Tuesday— the, the number of, of new cases there in, amongst students and staff had swelled to 925. Now, that's a 30,000 uh, student district, okay, from elementary mm-hmm. to high school, 30,000 students. So 925. So that's almost 1,000. That's like one in 30. You know what I mean? So one kid in every class. I mean, if you want to look at it that way, break it down, or one teacher yeah. in every class. Uh, Dr. Hightower, guess what, Doctor? Is do- let me give you a quiz. Is Dr. Hightower a spokesman, spokesman or superintendent? I think he's got to be the administrator, right? Absolutely. Dr. Hightower in the Cherokee School said, we know all parents do not believe the scientific research that indicates masks are beneficial, but I believe it, said Dr. Hightower, and see masks as an important measure to help us keep schools open. Now, Explain, maybe if you could for our listeners, what belief and science have in common. Um, b- belief, you can believe whatever you want, but if it's scientific, it's true whether or not you believe it, right? There you go. Thank you. So Man, essentially you put me on the nothing. Spot there. That, was, that was stressful. <laughs> so you did well. Belief, he says, look, some people believe in science, some people don't. He happens to, which makes him immediately an enlightened, you know, enlightenment administrator, I would think. Um, now, his sentiment wasn't shared, though, Josh, uh, by a group of 40 apparently non-believers, 40 parents who showed up at the district offices before the school day started. This is in the Cherokee School District in Georgia. By the way, the gall to call it the Cherokee school district you know we're going to talk later uh, more about some history american history uh let me let me just hasten to add that it is the cherokee that were driven out by force from georgia 
but they named a school district after them. So the Cherokee school district uh, saw 40 parents showing up carrying balloons and signs declaring their support for the reopening policy. They cheered as officials pulled into the parking lot. One of the, uh, the mothers that showed up, uh, Morgan Morrison by name, I think she goes by Karen, uh, said, don't worry about the basement Bobbies or negative Nancys. That's what her sign said. She's the mother of a second grader who lost her mask, she said, on the second day. Ms. Morrison said she and her husband do not wear a mask either. Quote, I feel like before we're even born, God has a plan for when he's going to take us to heaven. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Close quote. I'm speechless. I mean, by that logic, right, you can do anything, right? You, should, you can just, you know, run off a cliff. You can drive a thousand miles an hour on the, on the highway. You can, you know, if God has a plan, then it doesn't matter what you're actually doing. That's a very fatalist way of, of looking at the world. I, that's, that's a little bit shocking to me. Um, maybe I should, should have been aware that people thought like that, but uh, wow. I mean, yeah. this is the thing. Like, there, there's so many reasons why the United States has been the center of, of COVID outbreak, but that kind of attitude, right? This, this kind of individualist attitude. And I, I, I tend to think the, the people, a lot of people pointed at the individuals, might tend to think that this is more an issue of, there's something else going on than just this, you know, American spirit of individualism that's causing the, these problems, but just this complete American inability to see themselves as tied into a larger society is, seems to be kind of important, right? That our, mm -hmm. uh, the idea that we might want to make some small sacrifice for the betterment of others is uh, a foreign concept for a lot of people. And as long as that's true, it's, you know, I, I, I don't know why we would be planning to go back physically in the, in the spring at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's not, I mean, none of the, the metrics of it have been met essentially for no. what we'd call it, consider safe reopenings. And, you know, I'm like you, I mean, listen, in Georgia, in the primaries the other day, you know, the, the uh, candidate, I believe is a Republican candidate, must have been a Republican candidate uh, for a congressional seat, who's an avowed follower of QAnon, mm -hmm. which is sort of the, you know, the luna, lunatic fringe conspiracy uh, movement, QAnon. These are the people who had Hillary Clinton, you know, sex trafficking in a pizza shop and, yeah. you know, a guy actually showed up with a gun. And, and so to save the, you know, the children who are being sex trafficked and probably order a medium pepperoni. <laughs> but but uh, a QAnon candidate, the first that I know of, uh, a vowed QAnon candidate, won her primary in Georgia the other day, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to what might be, you know, a, a fun new congressional uh, session, you know, if she should make it all the way to Washington. Uh, and, and we can find, you know, in the, in the history of American politics, we can find these sort of oddball, you know, sort of political positions staked out. You know, um, I think what, you know, with the school thing, and, and we're going to get into our interview here in a second, but I think the thing that interests me, it's, some, it's a thing we've been on now for a while in History Against the Grain, is how, as, as the superintendent or the spokeswoman said, you know, a system has been set up, right? That that power creates sort of you know systemic approaches to discipline and governing and creating you know effectively you know um, mechanisms of, of control, let's say, you know, over the uh, 
you know, the governing of the populace, including schools, which, you know, being mostly for, you know, for young adults and children, you know, has a kind of, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't kidding about citizenship. I mean, there's, always, there's long been a kind of, you know, governing understanding, you know, with, with schooling that, that one of the best ways to, you know, create uh, obedience and conformity and, and discipline and whatnot is, is through the, you know, the mechanism of, 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 a, of a school, right? Even though mm-hmm. as educators, you and I might see our jobs as, you know, expansive, you know, a questioning, opening. I always tell my students the greatest student learning outcome they're going to be is to, to become more dangerous than they currently are. You know, they're going to ask questions. They're going, they're going to question you know, what they're told and evaluate information. But in some ways, isn't that cross at cross purposes with that more, you know, controlling, you know, function of, of our schools? Yeah, it's the, it's, the, it's the great contradiction right at the heart of this. This was what I was kind of trying to refer to earlier is that the, there's a system that's created for a purpose and increasingly, I think, you know, people like us, like our wives, like many people we know, don't buy into that purpose, right? So we're now trying to do something within a system that was not constructed to do the things that we're trying to do in, in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have this kind of this contradiction where the schools are set up as, as you know, as I sometimes say, factories of indoctrination, right? It, the, the big benefit of the public schools is that they're public, that, you know, in theory, every school-age child is going to go through them. So they become this incredibly valuable resource for a state to get across the ideas they want to get across to their, you know, to their eventual citizens who can serve in their armies and work in their factories and, you know, run their factories and, and do all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're trying to do is something very different, right? Not to create this paint by numbers population who, you know, is going to fit into these roles, but as you were saying, to construct thinking individuals, right, who will ask questions, who will not just buy the party line every time, who will uh, know how to think and question and research and find their own answers. But it's, you know, the frustration is we're doing our best to do this. And then there's this lady, I'm, I don't remember her name. I don't think we need to name her again, who's just throwing up her hands and saying, well, it's going to be as it's going to be. God, you know, has his plan and that's all we can do. And so why would we think, why would we question, why would we make smart choices even uh, given that uh, set of beliefs. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know where this contradiction can come to an end. Uh, we need a different kind of society really for that contradiction to come to an end. But you know, when people talk about decolonization, when they talk about, uh, you know, the abolish, abolishing and uh, this system or that system, the reason why people get to that is because the realization that, you know, we're part of this system that was constructed for a very specific purpose. And it's a purpose that a lot of us don't really believe in any longer. Um, and so you can try to reform, but when you reform, you're keeping those structures in place. You're keeping the system in place. And so I, I you know, and I'm, I'm not even sure where I stand in this right now, but, um, for, for a lot of people, the only answer is we got to get rid of it. We got to build it from scratch because reforming is keeping the, the same systems in place. And as long as those systems are in place, real change is not going to happen. Very well said. You know, these are these are thorny issues, and and you know we're fortunate to have on history against the grain today uh, you, your brother, Professor Benno Weiner of, of Carnegie Mellon University, and Benno's going to talk more about uh, what's happening in China. But one of the things that he's he's going to address is is how state building 
and what he calls nation building in, in, in China by the current regime has, uh, among other things, created a kind of chill or, or, or a pall over, you know, the, the sort of academic freedom and, and, and the, you know, the running of, of schools and universities, including uh, what, what he's prepared to see now in, in teaching this fall uh, remotely, as many of his students, uh, look, I don't want to give away, but, it, but it's fascinating stuff. Many of his students are Chinese nationals who will be taking his course, presumably from China, his online course, right? Dealing yeah. with contemporary China politics and history. Uh, and there's a real question that Ben was going to address there about, you know, what, you know, what, what are the governing, um, you know, authorities in China going to allow, you know, because, uh, you know, the free flow of information is among the, you know, the dimensions of conduct that, that uh, regimes, uh, whether in the, the Georgia school district, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or the People's Republic of China, take an interest in. Absolutely. Yeah, so this is our second time talking to, to Benno. In both cases, his book has been at the center of it. We're, we're taking the discussion to it in a different direction this time. But I wanted to introduce his book a little bit more fully than um, I think we did the first time, and, and certainly than we did in the interview as well. The book is The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. And just to kind of um, read from the blurb, what he's doing here is providing an in-depth st- study of a m- minority region uh, during the initial decade of, of the People's Republic of China. So, you know, as he'll talk about, China is, is designated as 93% Han Chinese. That's the dominant uh, population. But there are these other groups existing on the borderlands of China, which those borderlands tend to be uh, end up being 60% of the total territory of the country, by the way. But, you know, no, it's remarkable. Are Tibetans yeah. and uh, Uyghurs and, uh, you know, various other groups as well. He'll, he'll get into this more. And so what he has done through this really in, incredible research, and I know obviously I'm a biased uh, observer here. He is my brother, uh, very proud of him and, and this book. But, but the research is really um, incredible, and he's, he's finding access to these, these local archives, or he's found access to these local archives and these local materials that nobody's really accessed before. And what he kind of discovered through that, that research is that this project that the Chinese had, that the Chinese communists had, in these regions, and he's focusing mm-hmm. on a region called Amdo, which is in um, uh, it's it kind of Greater Tibet. It's in uh, Chinese territory in the province of Qinghai, but a largely Tibetan population. And by the way, Amdo is the size of France, right? So just to give you a sense of scale here, and uh, what he finds is that when the, the Chinese communists get out there, they certainly want to integrate this region into the Chinese state, into the Chinese communist state. They see it as part of their idea of what the Chinese nation is. But it's not just about state building. What they also engaged, wanted to engage in was a process of nation building. Uh, they wanted these Tibetans, in this case, and other communities as well, certainly, to be convinced that they should want to be part of this thing called China. And so he's going to describe this roughly 10-year period from about basically 49 to about 58, 59, in which this process of state building and nation building would go together in the region of Amdo. And... You know, the, the vision was for this transformation that would be gradual, it would be organic, and it would help transform a vast multi-ethnic empire that had preceded the, the, the coming of the communists into a singular nation state. But what happens, not to, we don't want to spoil the ending too much, what's going to happen by 58, 59 is that revolutionary impatience is going to take over. Uh, that this, this slow organic process, which had originally been envisioned, just is taking too long. It's not having the results that they've been, been wanting. And so you see after 58, this, this move towards just rapid change. And what's gonna happen, I think, is, is pretty um, easy to, to predict. 
you end up with communization to large-scale rebellion and then brutal pacification. And as he's going to talk about, uh, or as he writes about in his last chapter, the legacy of that pacification, the legacy of the violence, still cast a pall over modern China. So we will certainly talk about all those issues, but we also want to do in this interview, what we also did in this interview, is try to tie it to contemporary issues in the People's Republic as well, particularly as it relates to not just Tibetan regions, but to Xinjiang, where we're seeing this ethnic cleansing, we can call it, of the Uyghur population, and then also to the story of Hong Kong as the PRC tries to integrate it into okay. China as well. So this was a fun interview to do. Hope you guys enjoy it. Talk to me. Well, we are very happy to have our first returning guest here. This person is, is returning not just because he's blood-related, but because he's got interesting, insightful things to say about both you know, the contemporary world, but also the past. This is a history podcast, after all. And so we're delighted to have my brother, Carnegie Mellon, professor of history, Chinese scholar, Benno Weiner, who we had on in, I think, episode five, which seems a lifetime ago. And we're actually going to return to talk about his book because... While we delved into it in, in many ways, then what I want to do this time is is use the book to provide more of a window into much of what's happening in, in contemporary China, and then also widen the lens to the kind of broader world that, that China is obviously a part of. So welcome back, Benno. Thank you very much. Great to be back. So where I want to start is, uh, so your book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier, mm-hmm. is now out, by the way. So when we first did the interview, I think it was probably a few weeks before that, release. That sounds right, yeah. It is picking up rave reviews from Wall Street Journal, The Economist. Uh, it was featured in the uh, LA Review of Books and many other places. Thank you. Um, so it's uh, it's been really cool seeing it, you know, kind of make its way around and, and get you know these all these positive reviews Thank from you. all these different places. Mm-hmm. Where I want to start is by something I think we talked about last time, but I, I want to return to because it, it in many ways it's one of the the easiest ways into in, into your book and, and kind of the ideas of that book, and that is that the People's Republic, the PRC as they began taking over and, and unifying this Chinese nation that they were building, mm-hmm. they engaged in this, this nation-building project, but also a state-building project. Uh, they were trying to do both at the same time. And what, what you kind of highlight is that, in the end, they were much better at state-building than they were at nation-building. Yeah. So can we just start with you, kind of talk about what, what, do you mean, what you mean by that? Sure. The way I look at things, state-building and nation-building are, are two different Processes. I mean, they're, they're interrelated, of course, but I think state building in, in some ways is much easier. The way I see state building is building the state, building the, the, the mechanisms uh, and the instruments of, of state capacity, borders and roads and laws and schools and, and all these types of things, which of course are, are problematic and difficult, but are, are sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, something that are, you can do mechanically in a sense. Where nation building, I think, is something more nuanced, more difficult. Because nation building uh, requires convincing people that they are part of a, a larger community, uh, that they have a stake in that community. And I don't think, I, I think you can effectively create a state through, through force, through violence. Maybe it's not preferable, but it can be done. I think it's much more difficult to create a nation if you rely on force alone to do so. And, and one of the big arguments I try to make in, in, in the book is that the, the People's Republic of China, uh, as it operated in these ethno-cultural borderlands, as I call them, 
uh, regions that had been part of the, the Qing Empire in the you know 18th, 19th, and into the 20th century. When, when, they, when they moved into these regions, they didn't just want to control it for the sake of control. Uh, they believed that these areas were part of a historical Chinese nation, and they wanted to convince these people that that, that, that was the case. Control was not their only goal. Their, their, their larger goal was transformation, as it was elsewhere in China. They wanted to create a Chinese nation, a socialist nation, and they believed that these people, Tibetans and different Muslim peoples and Nashi and Dai and Zhuang and Mongols and others were part of this nation. The problem was that many of these non-ethnically Chinese people didn't understand that, didn't believe that. So one of the Chinese Communist Party's main goals in the first years after uh, it was uh, after it founded the People's Republic of China was to convince these people that they were were Chinese, not ethnically Chinese, but part of this multicultural Chinese nation. Yeah, that's it's one of the things that's so complex here is that you keep you use this term in the book, you know, like nationality concerns. Like, you know, so not national, but nationality right. uh, concerns. And 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 so what the Chinese are trying to build is this this state that has many different nationalities within a single nation, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and you talk about it as as it's a psychological process, right? As opposed to the the kind of materialistic process of of building the state. There's a psychological right. aspect to this. And what strikes me, I mean, first of all, one of the things I th- think you do that's that's so useful and and so important is that you you kind of are really good at separating the propaganda of this process mm-hmm. because obviously um, if you know anything about Maoist China there there there's a little propaganda going on in, in Maoist China here and there but what you show is that there's these internal there's this internal conversation going on where you see that they actually believe this stuff they're not just you know trying to do this as part of the state building process right mm-hmm. as as a way of fooling people into believing right. these things and right. and getting them to be part of the nation but right. They legitimately believe in what they're doing, and so as as you know, I've been reading your book. You know, that's the kind of thing that that's that struck me is that the nation building project of we'll, we'll say probably that the first decade, right, from about forty nine to about fifty eight, is mm-hmm. is the period we're talking about. Yep, where there's this project called the United Front right. that's going on. So I, I have more to say there, but let's actually let me pause and let you explain what the United Front okay was. Sure. The United Front, the roots of the United Front go back to the earliest days of the, of the Chinese Communist Party, and it referred to a, a strategy that Comintern develops you know, under the Soviet Union by which communist parties in developing countries, in countries that are uh, under imperialist control or semi-imperialist control, where there's not a large proletariat, will ally with what they call the most progressive anti-imperialist political party uh, as a way to f- overturn imperialism and eventually lead to the capitalist stage after which there can be a communist revolution. So that's sort of the, the historical baggage behind it. But in China, it develops uh, under Mao as a way to ally with non-communist elements in, in order to, to construct the new society after 1949. After 1949, the, the Communist Party didn't get rid of this idea of the United Front. Instead, what they, what they did under Mao was sort of a part of new democracy. The idea that the, there would still be non-communist elements, non-proletarian elements in the, in the communist state. The idea was that they needed to unify, to ally with certain non-communist elements as a way to help build the new, the new nation. And in places like, like Tibet, in places like Amdo, the Amdo area of Tibet that I study, it referred essentially to a transitional period of indeterminate length in which class struggle would be de-emphasized. Instead, they're going to form alliances with the existing religious and secular elite, people that already existed as, as had, had a lot of, uh, of prominence 
uh, and prestige in this region. And the idea was that by allying with these people, they would have access to the common people, you know, Tibetans and Muslims and others. And um, eventually, through sort of progressive policies that supported things like equality between the nationalities, uh, economic development, freedom of religion, average people themselves would choose to join the Chinese nation, would choose to join this larger community. Um, and only at that time would the sort of the pre-liberation elite be eliminated as a class. Only at that time would the United Front end because you didn't need it anymore, because the Tibetan people themselves would voluntarily, gradually, and organically, to quote uh, a leading figure in the United Front, choose to join the, the Chinese nation. Yeah, it's, it's such a interesting strategy that they're going through. And what, what strikes me as I am, I'm reading it, you know, about this is that the project was very, what we would now call maybe progressive, mm-hmm. uh, enlightened maybe. Right. Now, it was ultimately, in, in many ways, it was an attempt to destroy, the, I mean, the ultimate goal, right, is that they're going to destroy these these local cultures and they're all going to be assimilated into this large kind of socialist nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's obviously not a project we would necessarily agree with, but there is this progressive you know element to this they're very sensitive to, to local issues they're very aware of of these power structures and how to try to work within them mm-hmm. and there's a lot of insight you get from from finding these these documents these discussions that that uh, representatives of the, of the party have while trying to mm-hmm. operate within amdo operate within these minority areas and the one that, that stuck out to me is um, you're talking about uh, this problem of, of quote unquote parochial attitudes mm-hmm. or, or local nationalism. Right? right. This is something that the, the party saw as a, as a bad thing. They didn't want to create a nation in which there's all these separate nationalities with their own national identities mm-hmm. built within it. Right. But the insight they had about this was, I, I think, really important. And what they essentially believed is, I'm going to quote here mm-hmm. from this. This is from a, a, one of the local functionaries, uh, Joe Renshan. Yep. Is that Joe Renshan. He says that, quote, local nationalism is a product of past nationality exploitation. Right. That the reason why there's this local nationalism is because they've been exploited historically. And out of that exploitation, they've kind of built this sense of identity with each other. Uh, he goes on to say, after nationality autonomy is implemented, which is essentially part of the goal of this, this um, mm-hmm. united front, and national minorities become masters of their own homes, the political conditions for local nationalism will be completely eliminated. Right. So, you know, one of the things he's, he's saying there is that that the fault uh, or the reason why these local nationalisms exist is because of Han chauvinism. Well, the Han Chinese yeah. are, you know, through their impositions on these local populations, mm-hmm. uh, are creating these, these bonds of identity. So if they actually free them, if they liberate them, if they give them equality, if they give them right. access to economic development, if they give them access to modernity in many ways, right. then the, the conditions for local nationalism will, will go away. Yeah. Yeah, and both you both you and Joe and Sean both probably described the United Front as it was implemented in Omdo better than I did. Um, you know, Joe Renshawn was the head of the United Front Work Department, so he would know what he's talking about. Uh, but that's exactly um, what they were trying to do. Again, when they came into these areas of, uh, in, in Omdo, you can look at the, the documents. They didn't believe they were going into a, a foreign country. They believed this was part of China. But I think fairly in, in a fairly enlightened way, they understood that local people didn't agree with that, didn't didn't understand that, didn't have that same concept, and and they 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 decided that the reason was because of the historical exploitation that what they called minority peoples or minority nationalities uh, were victims of 
over, over many centuries by, by the Han Chinese. So the number one way to recreate this, this Chinese nation, this historical nation um, that existed in, as a concept but not on the ground, was to get rid of Han chauvinism, Han exploitation, great, great Han um, chauvinism, as they called it. And, and so that really was the core of the United Front ideal, was to, 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 to show these people that were different types of Chinese. We believe in, in unity, we believe in equality, we believe in freedoms of, of religion. But as you point out, the ultimate goal was, was not to maintain this difference, but to assimilate, to acculturate into a new, a new whole, into a new socialist whole. So, you know, it, it's on one hand maybe enlightened, uh, or as I, I, kind of, I kind of use James Scott's idea of uh, high modernism, this idea that there is a sort of scientific and, and, and technical pr progressive means to, to understanding societies and to changing and, and bettering societies. But it's, but it's implemented unilaterally, right? Tibetans aren't asked if they want this. Um, this, is, this is assumed, because it's a part of a high modernist idea, that this is what they need. So it's very much a sort of a civilizing project, a socialist civilizing project, a nationalizing project imposed upon them by an outside force. And, and this is sort of the conflict that they're not able to resolve, ultimately. Now, James Scott also reminds us that these types of high modernist projects, due to the, the massive power imbalances between the state and the people that are, they are purportedly helping, and because of the hubris behind the project itself, um, the scientific supposed scientific rationality, these types of high modernist projects almost always fail, and, and usually spectacularly so, he, he'll, he'll tell us. And they usually do so uh, in a way that results in tremendous amounts of violence being committed against the people that they were meant to help in the first place. And that's certainly what happens in the case of Tibetans and, and many other uh, so-called ethnic minorities in China under, under the Maoist regime. It, it, this, it strikes me as you, were, as you were talking, you know, you think about like the, the 1848 revolutions in Europe um, mm -hmm. and, you know, like the Hungarians try to break off from the, Austro from the, you know, the uh, Habsburg Empire, the, mm -hmm. the Austrian Empire. And the, the Magyar majority there has this kind of, again, enlightened idea of what this new state is going to be. But ultimately, the new state is based around the Magyars, this, this single right. ethnic group. And they're going to try to Magyarize the, the society and the culture. Mm -hmm. and, and so in, in their own sense of liberation, what they're not understanding is that other groups within their territory are not going to feel the same way. The Croats don't want right. to be liberated by, right. by the Magyars because to them, liberation for the Magyars means subjugation for themselves. And, you know, that's 1848, this is 100 years later, but it's, it's almost a, a very similar process where, right. you know, one group trying to liberate another is ultimately creating the seeds of, of just a different kind of subjugation. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, there were certainly Amdo Tibetans and others who bought into the project, who believed in it. It's hard to know how many of them because we just don't have sources that can tell us this. But I think ultimately this was, again, an, an outside imposition. One, one of the other things that, that I've been struck by in reading your book is that again that that idealism is so is so strong in this yeah. project and you know as we were just talking about that idealism is not necessarily uh equal for everybody you know mm -hmm. one's ideals are not necessarily the ideals of, of others right. but you see stuff like when you know when they form these provincial committees um right. at, at one point they you know the 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 prc authorities there realize oh it's all people from, you know, the, the higher classes of, of local communities, and it's all men. And yes. so when they create the, the they want to create the, the real committees that are going to run these new provinces, they say, well, you need to have a certain number of women, mm -hmm. right? And I think they say 25% of the delegates have to be women at some point. Is yeah, that, in this, in this one right? case, yeah. I don't know if it was a, a standard, that, but certainly, yeah. Okay. 
And then we need the masses. And it's so funny hearing, you know, these terms, these socialist terms bandied about in this basically, you know, this area where pastoralism was the only means of survival in some parts of, of Amdo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have on the one hand that the Chinese revolution breaking from socialist orthodoxy by right. focusing on the peasantry, not the proletariat. And then you have this proletarian, I'm sorry, this peasant-based revolutionary idea moving out to these areas where there aren't even peasants. There's just, you know, basically herders and then trying to create mm-hmm. socialism amongst a group that's even further removed from, from socialist uh, yep. yeah. orthodoxy. But, um, but that idealism is, you know, as we kind of maybe shift now to talk about what this means for, for contemporary China, I, you know, I never thought I would, I would think, say this, but it, the enlightened policies of Mao really stand in contrast to the brutality and arbitrariness of contemporary China. Um, you know, you can, obviously, I'm not trying to defend Mao because mm-hmm. things are going to go real wrong here by, you know, 58, 59. Yes. Uh, many people are going to die. There's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of insanity. But you do definitely see that there's there's a set of ideas behind this. There's a set of goals. There's a set of ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those who are carrying out these these ideals, uh, like people like Joe Renshon, mm-hmm. believe in them, right? There's there's a set of well, ideas and beliefs behind them. Yeah. The, the idea of belief is an interesting one. And I actually try not to use that word in the book because it's really hard to know what people believe. I certainly think that Joe Renshon was a champion of these of these policies. And actually, Xi Zhongshun, who is the, um, the father of, of Xi Jinping, was one of the main architects mm. of these policies in Northwest China as well. So that's actually an interesting connection we can, we can wow. make in a second. Okay. Um, but what I, what I describe it as an institutional ethos in the book, this mm-hmm. is the way that the institution of the CCP operated in these regions, and there's no indication that they were doing it cynically as an institution. Right. This is what yeah. was supposed to be done for these reasons, and it would result in these, these outcomes. I think that's quite different than saying that people or you know, systems believe in something. And I think there's a right. lot of, it's, if you read between the lines, there's a lot of indication that a lot of the cadres that were actually sent to these areas, who probably in many cases weren't the most high-quality cadres in the first place, um, mm-hmm. being sent to these, these very desolate, peripheral, from their understanding, areas, very difficult places to live and operate in, and even to succeed in. And there's a lot of indication that they didn't necessarily believe in the project in the way we might think of the word belief. They're constantly being criticized by, by higher-ups for not following orders, uh, for not, not trusting local Tibetans, and to, for, for not essentially following United Front guidelines. So, you know, what that tells us about belief and institutions is, 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 is a little bit complicated, and, and um, maybe, maybe it, I think it's an interesting topic, but it's a hard one to really nail down. But I do think that the, the project itself was not cynical. The project itself was something that those that designed it understood to be necessary, proper, proper, and probably scientifically sort of engaged. Yeah, I, th- I, I th- like your idea of it's not cynical. That's, I think, more what I was trying to get across is that there's, it's, it's really easy to think of all politics as being kind of this cynical, mm-hmm. you know, project of, of power. But when you see something like this where it seems like it was legitimately um, a project that existed at face value, right? That the goal of it was what they said it was. Right. Was I, I, believe, to be. I, I believe so. Based on everything I've seen, I don't, I don't see them saying things publicly uh, and then saying things that are different in, in private document. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I already said this, but I, that's one of the things that's so important about your research is that you're getting access to both the public stuff and the private stuff. So you get a sense of that contrast and you just don't see that, that big gap between what they're saying to each other and what they're saying in public and um and so you know where i wanted to get to then is that that this suggests a huge 
difference between then and I mean certainly even by the 1960s there's there's a difference but mm -hmm. contemporary China um, I was making this point to you earlier that um, that in many ways what contemporary China has become is Mao's nightmare right <laughs> and you know obviously Mao was brutal and right. crazy and all this kind of stuff but the outcome of, of, of what China is now is not at all what he intended. Can you, can you just kind of speak to that real quickly and then we'll... Uh, I, I mean, I think you're, you're probably correct. Now, I mean, Mao was complicated. Mao wanted a strong China. He would probably be on some level thrilled that China is now a, a world power. He'd be probably thrilled that it's, um, it's, it's economically successful by some measures. But I don't think um, certainly the, the structure, the, the way that's become sort of a, uh, the domain of certain, you know, of a very much capitalist technocratic leadership is, is probably not what he, he envisioned. So I think there are, there are t multiple right. sides to, to Mao, but uh, I, I can't imagine that he would be t you know, thrilled with Huawei, for instance, being the, the, the outreach yeah. uh, organization of the CCP, so to speak. Right, so, so let's get into contemporary China because I think you know, for a lot of people in the United States and maybe the broader kind of uh, Western world will just say, I, I think there's some awareness of, of you know, this, this increasing authoritarianism mm -hmm. of the Chinese state, which it sounds weird because China has been depicted in so many ways as this authoritarian communist state yeah. for so long. But, you know, we, we traveled there in, in 95. You've traveled there obviously a lot. And I will say my experience in 95 is not one where I felt like there was this, you know, this creeping, you know, police state right. uh, present. It, it obviously was. And it's, you know, it's different being a foreigner there than being a Chinese person. But mm -hmm. you didn't feel the presence of the state all the time certainly there right and that's a pretty big contrast to this this chinese world now where you know facial recognition software and and mm -hmm. uh you know they're taking genetic tests on everybody and there's this surveillance that's just uh it, you know it's maybe the greatest surveillance state in the world right now i don't mean great in terms yeah. of good by the yeah. way you're talking about the 1950s we're obviously now in 2020 what's what's happened with this project of nation building as we now you know mm. are, are looking at this contemporary right. world well, I mean, those, those are good questions. Let me let's start with the surveillance state and sort of the, the, the creeping authoritarianism. And I think you're right about that, but I think we do have to remember that it, it affects different people very differently. Some pe mm -hmm. For some people, particularly for Uyghurs and Tibetans and and dissidents and intellectuals and increasingly, you know, scholars more generally, uh, I think the state can be quite present and, and obviously very, very oppressive for, for many of these people, right. particularly ethnic minorities in some of these regions. And I, I don't think it necessarily weighs upon everybody equally is all I'm saying. But certainly yeah. there's, there's this increase in, in surveillance, in big data, in you know, things that we see around the world. But, but for various reasons, China probably um, is, as you say, leading the pack in, in, in yeah. many, many ways. Uh, in terms of, of nation building, I think there really was a, a remarkable uh, shift around 2008, 2009. This is not the first shift. You, you, you mentioned the, the 1958, 1959 in Tibetan areas when there's these rebellions and, and, their, um, and, and, and their pacification very brutally. The Cultural Revolution, of course, had, had huge impacts on the way the nation was understood and conceived and, and non-Chinese people's places in it were, were understood. But I think there was a, a, a real shift around 2008, 2009, when there was, uh, again, some ethnic unrest or uprisings in Tibet, including Amdo, and then in 2009, when there was inter-ethnic sort of uh, riots in Xinjiang, and in both cases followed by other acts of, of, of violence here and, and there. And the, the lesson, I think, that the Chinese state got from these was that 
the, its core constituency is not everybody. It's not multinational, multi-ethnic China. Its core constituency are, are the Han Chinese, who make up 93% of the population. And up to this point, again, with some uh, caveats, the Cultural Revolution and, and, and other times, there really was this idea that it was a multi-ethnic nation, a nation of different groups, equal but different. And I think for some, and, I, and, and some intellectuals and some party leaders, the, the, the lessons of 2008, 2009 was that this was a mistake. We should never have talked about having a multinational nation, the way you put it at the, the, the beginning of, the, of, of our talk. Instead, we should be talking about one nation, right, uh, molded together from different people. And of course, right. because the, the demographic, economic, political, social powers with the Han Chinese, the Han Chinese are going to have the, 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 the major impact, the major sort of say in what this, this nation looks like. So I, I really think that there has been a, a shift in the way that, that the Chinese state understands the nation. And I think this goes alongside a general uh, increase in ethno-nationalism around the world that you're, you're very aware of. This is not a uniquely Chinese moment, right? This is a right. moment, in, in, particularly since, let's say, 2012, 2013, when Xi Jinping comes to power, at, at which the, the Chinese state says, you know what? Ethno-nationalism is actually a powerful weapons the wrong word. That sounds too, that sounds too violent. But like a tool. Tool, thank you. For, for, um, for legitimacy for state building, for economic development, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that they've really, uh, and I think you can see this in Xinjiang most, most clearly, where um, there's been this draconian imposition of securitization, of, of incarceration, of forced labor, and, and the sort of destruction of, of local cultures, religious and otherwise. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a real turn to sort of a ethno-national basis of, of, the Chinese, of the Chinese state and nation. That's, that's very worrisome. I, I just don't think that that idea of, the, uh, of a pluralist state, although imperfectly uh, implemented over the past 40 years, 50 years, is, is, still, is still sort of vibrant. Uh, that's just not something that I see the state being too concerned with. Yeah, they're not, not even pretending like that's a goal at this point, right? I mean, I mean, you know, in terms of the rhetoric, it's still there. Oh, it is. Okay. But, but yeah, but certainly it's well beneath the, the, the surface at this point. I was struck by, by something as you were talking where you said, you know, 93% of the, the country or the nation is Han Chinese. It's, you know, it's a, something that's cited often that it's this kind of monolithic, in, in many ways, a monolithic nation, 93%. But you can make the case that, that even the fact that 93% of the population is considered Han is an example of successful nation building in itself, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That, you know, 100 and, what, 150 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago, I don't know that 93% of the population within the borders of, of China would identify as Han, right? No, they wouldn't have. There wasn't that concept. I mean, uh, the, the, the idea of, of the Han Chinese as a modern nationality is a very recent one that begins among certain intellectuals in the end of the 19th and picks up steam in the 20th century. And I do, I, and it wasn't just the, the, the you know, this, this is a project that the communists were successful at, at implementing, but before them, the, the nationalists and other regimes were also part of this, you know, that, that, that's something they shared with their predecessors, sort of this mm -hmm. creation of the, of the Han Chinese identity and the Han Chinese nation. And, you know, and, and it's not total, it's not totalizing, right? People, there's still regional identities, there's still regional, you know, dialects, which you know, uh, you know, there's a, a, a new book out called um, Dialect in the Making of Modern China by Gina Tam, who, who, you know, discusses this and says, you know, 
um, these things still exist among other, among, other, among other arguments that she makes. But I think it has been a relatively successful, or, or maybe more than relatively successful, nation-building project. But that just shows you how hard it is to, to stretch these into very different ethnocultural regions with completely right. different languages and, and histories and, and, and backgrounds. Right. There seems to be a level, a level of difference beyond which it gets, it gets more difficult. It seems that um, way, right? Can you talk a little bit about, about specifically, I mean, we can, I want to talk about Hong Kong also, but okay. can you talk a little bit about Xinjiang specifically? I know that this is not necessarily your, your area of, of expertise, yeah. but it's definitely something you've been very, uh, you know, you, you read about this stuff. And it, it yeah. does connect to your own research, even though it's a different region and a different, a different um, ethnic group that's, that's um, involved here. Xinjiang, Xinjiang is a massive region in, 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 in northwestern China. Maybe, maybe your reader or your listeners know, maybe they don't. It's really more closely attached to Central Asia culturally and historically than it has been to, to, to East Asia. And it came under, under, under Beijing's control under the Manchu Qing Empire, uh, just as Tibet did in the 18th century. And it was ruled separately from China proper. It was ruled indirectly, as most imperial possessions are. Um, up until the end of the, of the Qing. And like in Tibet, the, the, the main problematic, the main, main problem or, or issue or concern that Chinese state builders have had in the 20th century is how to turn what had been these, this very diverse, indirectly ruled imperial constellation into a unified nation state of, of, of different peoples. The policies in Xinjiang were similar, although there, there are, are, are significant differences to the way they ruled uh, Xinjiang into Tibet. Uh, in particular, they sent out a, a lot of Han immigrants to the Xinjiang region in the 1950s. And sort of, there's this thing called the Bingchuan, or the CC Corps, the Construction Corps, uh, which has been sort of this imperial-like state apparatus operating separately from the, the, the Xinjiang government, connected directly to Beijing, which has been this sort of economic outpost and this imperialist outpost in, in Xinjiang all along since the 1950s. The population there is is mostly Turkic Muslim peoples of, of different different types, Uyghurs being the, the 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 most prominent. And a lot of the problems that we see in Tibet, we see in, in, in Xinjiang throughout the the Maoist period. What can I say about what's going on right now, other than it's 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 beyond the pale? Um, over a million people probably uh, incarcerated without charges from all walks of life. The regime claims that it's doing this to counter uh, terrorism as well as a, a, a um, job training program to civilize, to educate local Muslim peoples. But it's pretty clear that the purpose really is to assimilate this region once and for all, to, to get rid of local customs that they find to be dangerous, uh, in particular Islam, as well as connections to the greater Central Asian Islamic worlds and tie it closer to, to the Chinese, Chinese state. And I just say what I, what my, you know, they, they may be, they may be successful in terms of, once again, state building. They may create, mm -hmm. uh, you know, through these jails and schools and, 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 and factories, they may eliminate Uyghur opposition in the short run to, to, to the Chinese regime. But again, the, I don't think you can nation build through, through this type of violence. My concern is they're not too worried about nation building anymore. Right? In the 1950s, yeah. this was a major concern, and it became a major concern in the 80s as well. But maybe in the, in the 2000 teens and 20s, nation building is not their concern. Uh, state buildings and, and increasing state capacity on behalf of, of, the, of, of the regime and sort of Han Chinese interests may be um, 
what is really pushing their their agenda. Um, and that would, you know, that that's 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 scary. Yeah, it really almost seems like a kind of you know modern imperial project at this point. You know, something you might see like in you know the, the education camps and the job training reminds me of you know stuff I read about like uh, policies towards Aboriginals in in Australia. You know, mm-hmm. taking children away from parents and putting them in these schools and giving them job training, not because the the jobs that um, they were training for were actually jobs anybody could get, but just because it was a way of quote unquote civilizing them and making them fit into this this white society. Mm-hmm. But it's a, a project that you might find like the you know late nineteenth, early twentieth century, but now paired with this technological apparatus that makes it even more hor- uh, horrific um, and extends the ability of the state to you know uh, impose its authority in a way that just was not possible for the Australian government, the you know nineteen teens or you know the Americans in the Philippines or the French in Algeria, wherever else you want to, you want to name. It's it's a really scary pairing of yeah. you know kind of ideas from the kind of high point of, of imperialism with this set of technologies and yeah. surveillance and security that we're now seeing yeah. in the world today. As well as capitalism. Uh, you know, yes. So, yeah. and, and there's some great people writing on this and researching this. And, you know, Darren Bylard, uh, James Millward, I mean, just so many, Ryan Thumb, that I really encourage your, your, your listeners to, to take a look at. Definitely. So, just you know, we're getting we're getting towards the end here. But can you speak quickly about about the situation in Hong Kong, which in, in some ways seems so different, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you'll talk about the ways it's different, but it's also part of a, a similar project. We can we can say. Yeah, I think so, and I think this this goes back to your question about sort of the Han nation, right, or Han Chinese as a nation. Um, and here's a situation where a lot of people in in Hong Kong, and we don't want to say everybody, but certainly a lot of them certainly consider themselves to be ethnically Chinese, but their understanding of what it means to be Chinese, what the Chinese nation is, it, it is quite different than many people in the mainland. You know, they have a different historical experience completely from, from China. Hong Kong was really never part of the Chinese nation state. It was built as a British colony, and that doesn't mean that that was a, you know, I, I think many Hong Kong people are probably uh, very happy that British imperialism and all that it encompasses has, has, has fallen, that they're no longer subject to that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they see themselves automatically as part of the, of the PRC, Communist Party-led Chinese nation. Again, they have a different historical experiences, different, you know, different, 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 different understandings of what it means to be, be Chinese, or you know, many people do. And I, want, I don't want to speak for, for, for everyone in Hong Kong, of course. But here's a situation, once again, where you, I think in the mainland, there's this assumption that because they, they are Chinese, that they are automatically should be uh, uh, absorbed into this into this uh, political system and, and, and this national body, um, and it really never occurred to many people, you know, that this may not be how they they, they understand their identity um, and their community. And I'll just say that by trying to nation build in Hong Kong through force, I think they're making some of the same mistakes that they have in, in Xinjiang and Tibet. You know, they, they, it seems like they may be successful at incorporating Hong Kong uh, into the new state, but what's that gonna do to, uh, to, to the idea of, of, of the Chinese nation in, in Hong Kong? I think the real risk that the Chinese state's running is that like in Xinjiang, like in Tibet, Many Hong Kong people might begin to see, or maybe already are seeing, China as a new imperial power, rather as sort of this natural uh, nation state that they that they want to be part of. The, 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 Beijing has not convinced Hong Kong people that they have a stake in being Chinese. 
Chinese nationals, just like they haven't right. convinced Tibetans or, or Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims that they have a stake in the Chinese nation. And at least that's how I, that, that's how I would um, sort of describe it. Yeah, and I mean, as you've been saying, what's even more dangerous is they don't seem to think that they, that's something they should even be trying to do, right? Yeah, that's it's a good not point. not even part of their thinking. Right, yeah. that's, a, that's a very good point. So, uh, you know, the, the thing again that, that's so crazy is that, again, going back to your book, in 1952, the Chinese understood this, right? Or at least the, the party seemed to understand this, that if you, if you oppress a people, that mm-hmm. what that's going to create is a local nationalism. It's going it's yeah. to construct these yeah. local identities. It's going to yeah. bring people together. Um, they understood that 70 years ago, and now they've forgotten it or they are not interested in, in following that advice. Right. And it's hard to imagine a, a scenario. Like you said, you can, you can expand the state into Xinjiang, right? You can mm-hmm. create, quote-unquote, security there. You can make Hong Kong part of, of the mainland again. But can you make the people of Hong Kong Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, along with all the others, can you make the Uyghurs part of this? Do they have an interest in, in, in doing so? And it's hard to imagine how these strategies are employing now can possibly lead to the kind of outcome that the Communist Party was was looking to create, you know, right. at, at this point, 70 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's hard to know what's what's going on in the minds of, of Xi Jinping and the other leaders in, in Beijing and elsewhere. Um, you know, is this, a, is this just a short-term sort of uh, expediency or do they just not care? Um, or do they think that, you know what, in a generation people will have forgotten? You know, once they go to our schools um, and uh, get, get integrated into our institutions, uh, these things will no longer be an issue. Well, it hasn't worked in Tibet, and it hasn't worked in, mm-hmm. in, in Xinjiang. Will it work in a place like Hong Kong? Uh, I guess time will tell if, if, if things don't change. Uh, you know, right now I think things are, are, are pretty pretty grim in, in Hong Kong. And I, I do think that the, the, the Communist Party has made a mistake by trying to force uh, Hong Kong to be part of, 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 of China rather than convince people in Hong Kong that they should be part of China. That they have a, once right. again that they have a stake in being part of China. You know your your mention of of this hope that maybe people people will just forget this is actually ties into something that you're dealing with right now. Um, can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about these courses you've been assigned to teach in this coming <laughs> semester and, and then the difficulties sure. you're having? I, I have the pleasure of, of teaching two courses in the fall: one on Tiananmen Square and popular protest in in modern China, and the other a new one that, that they want me to teach because it's such an important topic right now about, it's called, I think, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the question of China. In other words, what is China? Is there a greater China? And, you know, and, you know I think the courses are themselves are, are fascinating in their own right. Um, but it's become more complicated because of the, the COVID-19 issue and the fact that, that many students will be doing remote learning, maybe the majority of them. And many of my students, usually a plurality of them, are, are, are Chinese nationals, are from the PRC. And, and frankly, I think they're the ones, you know, I, I really enjoy having them in my class. They add so much to it, and hopefully I add, you know, or the class adds uh, a lot to their understanding of, of, of China and their own, their own worlds that they wouldn't get uh, if they weren't going to a, a university outside of, of, of the PRC. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is that if they're in China, it, it, it's probably technically illegal to take these classes. So we, we're in the situation where... Um, you know, we want to offer equitable education to our, our, our Chinese students. We want them to be safe as well, and we want to defend acad- academic freedom. 
But how do you do these three things at the same time? This sort of triangle, uh, every time you try to figure out a way to do one or two of them, the third one, you realize the third one seems to be impossible or, or, or difficult. So we're really struggling with this question of how do we guarantee our students' safety as well as the education that they deserve to receive. And I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. This is com further complicated by the security laws in, in Hong Kong that were passed recently. And one of them, uh, I think it's Article 28, but someone can correct me if, it's, if I'm wrong, essentially gives, it seems, the, the Chinese state universal extraterritorial rights to prosecute anybody anywhere who violates Chinese law, including laws against sedition and, and separatism. And, you know, ar arguably, that's what I do every day as a, as a, as a, as a teacher yeah. uh, and, a, and, a, and a researcher on modern China. And that's what my students would be doing if they take my classes. So it's not, not that I think that they're going to necessarily, uh, you know, enforce these laws, but it just gives, uh, it gives you pause to think about sort of the, the complications that arise when we have these powerful states and we have these new technologies and when we have this creeping, it's not really creeping anymore, maybe totalitarianism and, 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 and uh, sorry, not totalitarianism, that's, that's an overstatement, authoritarianism. Um, right. You know, uh, I think we as, as, as educators and as, as, as uh, historians really, uh, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls that we have, to, we have to navigate and it's not really clear where the exit is, how we get through these at, at, at this point. Yeah, it's such a it's such a difficult thing, and you know it it brings us back to uh, we had your 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 friend and uh, I guess he was never director of your colleague, but Vincent Leung, who you know is teaching in Hong Kong right now, mm -hmm. Lingnan University, mm -hmm. um, and when he was on the episode was titled "The Past Is Political," and this is I think what what we're seeing right now is that teaching history and learning history is never just an act of pure knowledge. Uh, you right. know, collection or anything like that, that there's a very political aspect to this. And when a state apparatus like that of the PRC sees history as dangerous enough to to pass these kind of laws and to to try to limit access to to ideas for the population, it, it does suggest that what we do as historians is 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 a very important thing, right? A very mm -hmm. vital thing and, and maybe highlights the need for this kind of historical education that that you are offering that that uh, Chris and I are offering and all historians out there at all levels are trying yeah. to provide for their students. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and you, know, I won't, I, you know, I won't speak for Vincent, um, but, you know, he, he, he's the head of, a, of, a, of Lingnan University's history department. So he's going to have to navigate all these these issues himself as things, you know, perhaps change uh, in terms of what kind of curriculums maybe are allowed in, in Hong Kong. We'll see. But we do know that when the protests were going on in over the last couple of years, uh, one of the main uh, accusations from Beijing and from pro-Beijing leadership in Hong Kong was that the school system was the problem, that the curriculum was, was the problem, that they were teaching right. too, it was too sort of liberal and uh, maybe sort of, you know, imperialistic anti-China. Um, and so they, there's this idea, and I think they're going ahead that they're going to change some of this, this curriculum, and that, that's, of course, disconcerting. But as you point out, it's not just, this is not just a China thing, right? This is something that American historians deal with. This is something when we were talking about the um, debate over monuments 
uh, in mm-hmm. this country and, and, and President Trump's uh, threats or maybe he went through with it to uh, prosecute people for, you know, was it, I think he said 10 years in jail for yeah, turning yeah. down a monument. I mean, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> now we're outside my area of expertise. But, you know, as you, as you point out, these are not just concerns that uh, scholars of China and, and, and citizens of China have to work with or, or deal with, but, but, but broader ones. Yeah, absolutely. This this has been great. I want to make sure before we go to point listeners to your book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier, which I'm reading slowly just because I'm trying to read like seven books right now. But you know, every page there's insights on it that get me thinking not just about China, but about the broader world and power and authority and nation building, all this stuff. So I would highly recommend it to our listeners. And then also you've done a, a, a few blog posts highlighting these kind of issues as well so we'll we'll post links to these but i'll i'll say the one that i've i've read is uh on the cornell press blog um so you can just look that up but we'll also post it you've also got something on the columbia weatherhead uh site and then uh on a site called visualizing china mm-hmm. about these issues and others so i will uh, direct our listeners there as well thank you so this has been great uh, it's nice to uh, have a, a podcast where you get to just have a long conversation with your brother mm-hmm. uh, about relevant issues. Yep. And uh, you maybe you're our first second time guest. Maybe you can be our first third time guest at some point as well. Well, maybe I have to write another book. We'll see. <laughs> you go. So 10, ten years. <laughs> okay. You'll be back on. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for this. All right, we are back. Really fun talking to my brother. As I was thinking about the whole interview after, this this connection started kind of emerging in my, my head. And so you're thinking about this project he's describing in China, which is this project of essentially nation building, right? Not just we want to take territory and rule it, but we want to take the people and, and integrate them into this, this national idea. And so you think about what he's talking about, right? He's got this population who are going to be in the minds of the state. They're going to be liberated from a long period of exploitation. They are going to be given access to equality. They're going to be given access to economic development. They're going to be given, given access to, you know, in, in many ways, to control over their own lives. It's a 10-year period about. And in that 10-year period, what we have is from the PRC, this real institutional will to make transformational change in the ways that I was just talking about. But in the end, after about 10 years, the will to make real transformational change seemed to run out impatience began to set in and then the power structure changed course and when it did it left the impacted group and in the case that ben was talking about this is these amdo tibetans essentially hung out to dry with ramifications still felt today he's, he's going to make the case that you know that this it still cast this really uh, thick shadow over contemporary china the failures of the 1950s does that remind you of anything that maybe uh, we see in american history that process of attempted transformational nation building that's eventually abandoned? Yeah, you know, it really does. And it's something that, you know, you and I have been chatting about um, after Benno's interview, you know, off, uh, you know, before the recording. And, uh, you know, what he, one of the things he said, uh, both of you were referencing, was this idea that, that China bills itself now as 90, 93% Han in terms of its mm-hmm. sort of ethno-nationalism, right? You know, its ethnic identity, that, that right. 93% of the people in China are Han Chinese. But that really, mm-hmm. that itself is a kind of constructed idea, 
you know, that, that yeah. whenever we talk about the American people or the Chinese people, we're essentially talking about a made-up uh, construct or concept that really masks all kinds of, you know, regional diversity, whether it be language, culture, um, you know, identity, whatnot. Yeah, and so we were talking, you and I were talking about America after the Civil War in the period we call Reconstruction. Because what you get there is, is an attempt of about 10 years, kind of like the communists. You know, it sort of reminds me of when you take your kid to the grocery store and it's all fun and games at first. By the time you get to the produce aisle, you know, you're ready to take the kids out to the car because they're screwing around. It's like the communist regime right. ran out of patience, you know, and somehow the American yeah. regime is going to run out of patience. But unlike your kids in the grocery store, you know, this has serious consequences for, for literally millions of people. I mean, there are nearly 4 million African-American people in the country after the Civil War, you know, many times that I would imagine in China. So, you know, we're talking about big macro decisions and what happens during Reconstruction is all this remarkable effort is made. What Eric Foner is our chief um, uh, historian of, of education in this country, what Foner called a massive experiment in interracial democracy by giving the freedmen, the former slaves, the same constitutional rights. The 14th Amendment gives them the rights of citizenship due process. The 15th Amendment gives them men the right to vote. Uh, and this was unprecedented. You can imagine, Josh, going from, you know, chattel enslavement within just a couple of short years to something like, you know, in, in, in you know, liberty and democ democratic processes, you know. And so it's a remarkable, even revolutionary development in America. But in the end, it, it, it fails because uh, the political willpower, the, the, the ability to the critical mass to sustain it essentially evaporates. Uh, whites, including otherwise sympathetic whites, get, get uh, impatient to turn back toward material interests and developing you know, the industrial economy, making partnerships in the South you know, with new financial and, and economic opportunities post-slavery. And so that kind of, in the end, eclipses this, this brave experiment in, in, in a new nation building, an interracial nation. And, what, you know, one that, that genuinely offers, you know, participation and membership in the, you know, the sovereign affairs of, of the country now to, to black people. And, and because this experiment ultimately, you know, fails politically, and, and not just it fail politically, but the, there's a reaction in the South. The forces of reaction and white supremacy are going to come in and, and basically, in a scorched earth policy, repeal virtually every one of those uh, liberties, you know, that were uh, granted to the freedmen after the war. That the, that, uh, the, the freedmen themselves, I hate to even put it that way, Josh, because what our research tells us, the freedmen themselves were, you know, entirely aware of what was riding the former slaves were among the first to demand these rights. So I don't want to say they were just simply given these rights, you know, but that they demanded mm -hmm. these rights. And it's those rights then that are going to be, you know, com completely stripped in the, the reaction of the white South following Reconstruction. And, uh, and so what was a brave experiment, you might say, a righteous experiment now will be uh, utterly, you know, uh, pushed aside. Uh, and what we'll get for the next hundred, you know, years down to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 19, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, is a racial caste system that relegates, you know, black Americans to the uh, sort of subaltern places of, you know, non-power, of non-voting, of non-rights, of segregation and Jim Crow and, 
and and lynching and lynching is the most famous example uh, not unlike what uh, Benno was talking about you know in Omdo and, and Shinjon these 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 instrumentalities of power the what he calls the state building power right you know which forces of repression mm-hmm. and such you know lynching is the most famous example of that in the white south and and throughout the country actually in the hundred years that follows reconstruction but it's not the only one and getting back to education you know as an instrumentality of power you're going to see the rise of a whole new historical school that called the dunning school of mostly you would think william archibald dunning was born of southern he was he was born in you know white plains uh uh somewhere yeah plain plainfield new jersey i think it's either white plains or plainfield i can't remember White Plains would be more appropriate, I suppose. Um, that uh, Dunning's uh, professor of history at Columbia, and he's going to have a generation of grad students under his tutelage who will basically write the history of Reconstruction from a reactionary standpoint. The Dunning School will posit that re- Reconstruction was a tragic mistake. It was a mistake to give uh, colored people, you know, voting rights and legal rights, and that that anything other than white rule in the South was bound to be a failure. And you're going to get this. Uh, essential uh, perspective now written into histories uh, for the next few generations in America, well into the middle of the 20th century, the Dunning School will hold sway. And you see in a movie like Gone with the Wind, it's made implicit where the Civil War is a tragic mistake because it destroyed the Old South. It took away the, you know, the paternal rule of of white Southern plantation owners. Black people were happier under that regime, better protected, etc., uh, and so this is the the damage done, in effect, to the country now, you know, through the writing of history, where history, in effect, serves as, you know, Michel Foucault, one of our favorite patron philosophers, said, the writing of history itself is an instrumentality of power. And I, and I imagine Benno, Benno could speak, just as we've had others speak, to the ways in which, say, you know, the China, uh, the regime in China right now, is, you know, trying to influence the way the history of this last say, 50 or 60 years, you know, since the crackdown right in Tibet, um, you know, mm-hmm. the way the writing of that history is. So when, when Benno talks about teaching his class remotely and having Chinese national students in there, he's teaching against the grain, wouldn't you say? Trying, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the challenge is so great because, you know, these students probably need to hear what he's, what he's saying, but there's a literal life and death aspect to this, right? That this could be serious. There could be serious repercussions for those students living in China. You know, almost certainly being surveilled as they're they're in the class as well. It's it it puts a different cast on this idea of academic freedom than certainly what we we go through for whatever other issues we have. And I've never really felt restrained in terms of what I can mm-hmm. teach. You know, in in the context of American River College, I've always felt I've had total freedom to assign the books I want to assign and talk about history in the way I want to talk about it. But uh, it's not true everywhere, and there's no guarantee it's going to remain true here either. Just because it has been this way for us doesn't mean it's going to continue this way for forever. Well, we mentioned Tom Cotton last week, the U.S. Senator from Arkansas, who introduced a bill uh, that threatened to withdraw federal funding for any school found to be teaching the 1619 Project. And so, you know, when I talk about the Dunning School, uh, you know, of, of, of historiography that, you know, really— um, repudiated Reconstruction, repudiated the idea of an interracial democracy and instead countenanced, you know, a kind of racial caste system under Jim Crow that, that you know, apparently from, from the, you know, the 
standpoint of, of a you know, guy like Cotton, that essentially that story, that, that Dunning School story, you know, is the story that still should be taught and, and, and using the instrumentality of federal funding, you know, to try and coerce or, or you know, make schools conform to that sort of thing. It remains to be seen where it's, where it's going to go. But I get nervous when we start imagining that we're free of those kinds of issues. We're in a place like right. China, you know, benighted, you know, a foreign country, that th- those things are real. Because, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, the fact that, that Benno students are sitting in China, it makes, I mean, the global you know, educational classroom, you really can't afford to, you know, to, to sequester. You know, these things are interconnecting and these these issues happening in one place uh, are finding their counterpart in another place. And, uh, you know, what he said about Huawei, the Chinese tech giant who's, who's taking on the 5G, you know, network revolution. You know, do you, do you think if, if Mao had had Huawei that he would have used it just like uh, Xi Jinping is using it? It might have gone under a different name, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's these tools of power. The power structure is always going to use whatever tools are available to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in China, there's all kinds of tools available to it because they don't have these long traditions of, of you know, democracy. They don't have these norms of, of rights and these sort of things. But whether it's in China or the United States, if you give the power structure a set of tools, they're not going to turn them away, right? Mm-hmm. This is the thing that, you know, as you go from democratic administration to republic administrations, republican administrations, as as Democrats, for instance, if you're worried about uh, Republicans using the power that your preferred person is, is using, then you shouldn't want your person using it either, right? Mm-hmm. If if Obama can use drones to, you know, extrajudicially kill people in foreign countries, then that same power is going to be available to Donald Trump as well, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's just a reminder that. There needs to be a, a kind of vigilance, and that vigilance needs to be uh, people need to be held up to it, whether they're people you generally agree with or p- people you don't agree with. Because if you give somebody a tool, they're going to use that tool, right? If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Is that the expression? Absolutely. Yeah, and it gets us right back to where we started today. You know, when North Paulson High School uh, reopened, and we saw the picture of the crowded hallway, uh, the student who took the picture. A picture which you know subsequently uh, you know went viral uh, was suspended initially, so uh, reinstated only because of the the public outcry you know that you would punish this student for in effect you know telling the truth about what was happening in her school, uh, and so if we lest we think that power doesn't take notice you know of what it considers to be subversion you know of of changing of flipping the script uh, telling a different narrative. Uh, then ask that girl who was suspended, you know, and the fact that she was able to use the technological capacity of her smartphone yeah. connected globally to social media uh, reminds us of just what's at stake, I suppose, in these, uh, you know, these battles. Absolutely. This has been a good one. I, I, there's something I've been thinking about. I'm gonna tr- this is a, not a fully worked out idea, but uh, as I've been trying to get ready for the semester and kind of uh, you know, talk to my students about why history is important. I came up with this this idea: if history didn't matter, then the power structure wouldn't try so hard to control the dissemination of it. <laughs> and I, I think that's uh, something we we absolutely saw throughout this episode: this this weaponization of history, because history can can serve as this bulwark against the power structure, as this means of resistance against it. But just as often, particularly in the last two hundred years, history has been used as a tool of the power structure. So you know, if you're a historian out there, if you're a teacher out there. Don't be the tool. Be the uh, 
be the opposite of a tool. What's the opposite of a tool? <laughs> that that's going to be uh, that's going to be the guiding question in our our next episode. No, you know, be yeah, uh, be dangerous. Be dangerous. There you go. Yeah, get it. Get in good trouble. Let's let our yeah, uh, our friend John Lewis have the last word. You know, make good trouble for power. All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been History Against the Grain, episode twenty, and we will talk to you again next week. Nobody is So we were stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we were...